Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right, so... Last week, we started a mini-series on brothers in the book of Genesis, and uh, we started with Cain and Abel, and this week, we're looking at Jacob and Esau. Now, this story, it's way too long for us to read together. It would take up the entire sermon time just to read the story, so I'm just going to read a few select portions from it and do my best to summarize the rest. But if you want to follow along, we're going to be beginning in Genesis chapter 24. Uh, Oh, sorry, 25, verse 24. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac, their father, was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. All right. So on the day that Jacob and Esau are born, 
Esau comes out first, and Jacob is grabbing his heel. And what that image suggests to us is, is Jacob trying to pull Esau back into his mother's womb so that he can be born first and have all the rights and privileges that come with being the firstborn son in the ancient Near East. The word Jacob, the name Jacob, actually literally means heel grabber. And heel grabber is actually a Hebrew idiom for deceptive person. So from the moment that we meet Jacob, he is presented to us as a deceptive person who wants the rights of a firstborn son. So he's the main character in this story, but he's not a good guy. He's not somebody that we're supposed to look up to as this model of virtue. But on the other hand, he isn't really the villain of this story either, because everybody in this story has got problems. Uh, you might have noticed it said that the father, Isaac, loved Esau, but doesn't say anything about him loving Jacob. And the mother loves Jacob, but doesn't say anything about her loving Esau. So that's not a healthy family dynamic, is it? And perhaps if Isaac and Rebekah had shown non-preferential treatment to their sons, then maybe some of this conflict could have been avoided, the conflict that is about to unfold. And then, of course, Esau bears some blame for the dysfunction in his family. Uh, he swears an oath to Jacob to give, to give him the birthright that is, would be his because of his firstborn status. Um, since Esau was the firstborn, it would have been customary for him to receive a double portion of the family inheritance when their father died. Uh, but Jacob gets him in a moment of weakness to give up that birthright. So Esau agreed to give that up for one meal. This is not a guy who understands delayed gratification, right? So no one in the story is a model of virtue. Everybody's got problems. Now, as time goes by, Esau gets married. We're told that he marries several women at once. Unfortunately, that happened in those days. Um, and they were Hittite women. And we're, just, we're not told much about them, except that Isaac and Rebekah didn't like them. They were a source of grief. So now we got even more dysfunction in the family system, right? And then Isaac gets old and feeble, and he goes blind. He can't see in his old age. And one day, he says to Esau, the son that he prefers, go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me, prepare me the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, in those days, the patriarch of the family uh, would often give pronouncements near the end of his life of blessings or curses to people in his family or people near him. And those words were considered binding. Now, I'm sure some of us being removed from that culture, that sounds kind of weird, but I think we can recognize that that is kind of the way that things work, right? When 
our parents are near the end of their lives, maybe on their deathbed even, if they say certain words to us, those words have so much power, right, to shape our future. They can give us life or they can haunt us for the rest of our days, right? So Isaac knows he's got this power and he's ready to use it. He's ready to use it to give a blessing to his favorite son, the firstborn Esau. So he says, go, let's do this the right way. Get me some of my favorite food, bring it back, and then we'll have this little uh, blessing ceremony. But remember, Rebecca loves Jacob more. She wants Jacob to get the blessing. So she hatches a little scheme. You know, your father is blind. He won't know the difference. So Jacob, you go in there with some nice food before Esau does, and you deceive him into giving the bless of, into him giving you the blessing, right? Now, Jacob knows, well, Esau's hairy, and I'm not. So he puts some goatskins on his hands and on his neck so that if Isaac touches him, he'll think that he's Esau. And uh, it works, because poor Isaac, he's like, it sounds like the voice of Jacob, but his hands feel like the hands of Esau. So he, he is deceived by that. That works. And he ends up giving Jacob the blessing. Uh, he says that nations will serve him and that his brothers will bow down to him. And he says, those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. And then a little while after that, Esau returns from the hunt. And then Isaac says, well, I just talked to you. And Esau says, no, you didn't. And then they realize that they've been tricked. But Isaac knows he can't take back the words. Those words are binding. He says, I bless Jacob, and indeed he will be blessed. And poor Esau, he just bursts out in a wail, in a cry, and he says, bless me, me too, Father. Isn't there a blessing for me? But there isn't. It's too late. And so Jacob resolves, or excuse me, Esau resolves that when Isaac dies, he will kill his brother. And Rebekah overhears this. She knows that one of her sons has murderous rage for the other. And so she tells Jacob, get out of here. Run away. Go to your uncle Laban's. And, uh, and Jacob does. So this is one messed up family, right? And it's become so messed up that it can no longer hold together. Someone had to leave. And so Jacob leaves. Jacob the heel grabber. Jacob the deceiver. And he goes to his uncle Laban's. Um, yeah, he goes to his uncle Laban's just as mom said he should. And then he's there for 20 years. And over those 20 years, he becomes very successful by the standards of the ancient Near East. He has a whole bunch of children. He uh, has many flocks and herds, lots and lots of livestock. And uh, after 20 years, Jacob hears the voice of the Lord telling him, go back to the land of your father. And so he gathers that huge family and all that livestock, and he heads back to the same land 
that his brother Esau lives in. And he is nervous. It has been 20 years, but when he left, he left because his brother wanted to kill him, and he doesn't know if his brother still wants to kill him. But he hears the voice of the Lord calling him back. So he leaves, and there's this big, there's this question, right? Hanging over the story. What is going to happen? How is Esau going to react? Well, we'll answer that question in a little while. But before we get there, I want to talk about two important nights in Jacob's life. Two important nights. One happens at the beginning of this 20 years, and one happens at the end. And they share something in common, which is that they both happened in really stressful times in Jacob's life. Stressful times are not fun, but they are often what God uses to transform us in positive ways. Amen? And that was certainly the case for Jacob. So the first time happens when he is fleeing his father's home, and you gotta, you got to put yourself in his shoes, right? He is leaving the only place he has ever known, in unfamiliar territory, and he's alone. And uh, one night, he... Uh, he grabs a stone for a pillow. doesn't sound comfortable, but that's what it says he does. Lying out under the stars. And he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That picture tries to capture that a little. Kind of a, a, weird, a weird image, isn't it? If you've ever heard the uh, term Jacob's Ladder, this is what that comes from. Because it's translated staircase, but it's hard to really capture what that word is in the Hebrew. Ladder, staircase, ziggurat. There's all kinds of uh, different possible translations. And then Jacob, in his dream, he hears the voice of God making promises to him. And these promises are very much like the promises that God gave to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Promises to give him land, promises to make his descendants like the dust of the earth, like many, many descendants. And this is, this is my favorite of the promises. A promise to bless all the people of the earth through his descendants. All people or all nations. And God says to Jacob, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And then we're told that Jacob wakes up and he's just overwhelmed by the power of this experience. And he thinks, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. On that night, Jacob goes from being unaware of the presence of God to being overwhelmed by the presence of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't believe that God existed, and then suddenly he came to believe that God existed. I mean, we can take it for granted that Jacob, as an ancient Near Eastern guy, he believed in God, or a God of some kind, right? 
But something happens in that night, something that's hard to explain, where suddenly God goes from being not just someone who exists, but someone who is there, present, powerfully, to Jacob. Notice Jacob doesn't say, oh, hey, God decided to show up. Right? Jacob says, oh, God was in this place, and I just didn't realize it. But now I do. Shift in perspective. And you know, I don't fully understand it, but this is what happens. This is what happens to people. Maybe it's happened to you. You can't explain it, but somehow you come to realize in a powerful way, God is here. God is here. And it often happens to people when they're in situations like Jacob. Situations of transition, of stress, of anxiety, situations where your world is falling apart and you don't know what's going to happen next. And then unexpectedly, you become aware of the presence of God and you become aware of God giving you hope for the future. Can't explain it, but it happens. Now, what about this ladder, Jacob's ladder? What is that all about? Jacob saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. That stairway represents heaven coming to earth. It represents the coming together of the realm of heaven, the realm of God, and the realm of humanity, the realm of the earth. Now, here's something interesting. I think this is really interesting. Jesus referred back to this story early in his ministry. In the Gospel of John, he says to one of his disciples, Very truly, I tell you. This is right as this disciple is about to start following him. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, remember that story about Jacob and that night that he had the vision of the, the staircase, the ladder? You're going to see something just like that. Because I myself am the stairway to heaven. I myself am the coming together of heaven and earth, right? Because I am fully God and fully man. You will see heaven and earth coming together in me. The realm of God and the realm of humanity meeting. So if we want to experience the presence of God the way that Jacob did, then the way to do it is through Jesus, right? Because he is the staircase, he is the ladder to heaven. So we could say that on that night, Jacob had an encounter with Jesus. He wouldn't have articulated it that way, but he did. He saw a stairway to heaven and he felt the presence of God. Now, today we know that that stairway to heaven is Jesus. He has a name. He's a person. He bridges the divide between heaven and earth. And he is the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Jacob 
that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his descendants, right? Because it's through Jacob's descendants that the stairway to heaven comes to us. So that was the first transformative night for Jacob, the night when he awakened to the presence of God. The second stressful life-transforming night took place on his journey back home 20 years later. So Jacob is terrified of seeing his brother Esau again. He doesn't know how he will be received. So he sends out some messengers ahead of him and his whole family and all his flocks and herds to go and let Esau know they're coming and that they hope to be well received. Well, the messengers come back and they say, Esau is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. And Jacob thinks, oh, that is not good. It says that he is greatly distressed, filled with fear and distress. So that night, he sends all of his family, his flocks and herds, over a stream. And then he's alone. Just like he was alone in his anxiety and fear 20 years earlier. And then we get what I think is probably the most enigmatic and strange passage in the entire Bible. It's one of my favorite passages, though. We're told that Jacob wrestles with a man until the sun comes up. We're not told who the man is. We're not told why they started wrestling. We're just told this is what happened. So this is what the passage says. Genesis 32. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That's all the introduction you get. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. All right. There are so many strange aspects to that little story, aren't there? They're fighting each other, but they don't even know each other's names. And the man can't overpower Jacob, but then all he needs to do is just touch his hip socket to wrench his hip. It's weird. Well, I think the key to understanding this is to consider the name that Jacob gives to the place after the experience, right? He calls it face of God. And he tells us why. It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So Jacob recognizes that this nameless man that he wrestled isn't really a man at all. But it's, it's a manifestation of, of God, right? So however it might have seemed, this was not a fair fight. As is evidenced by the fact that the man can just 
touch his hip, and then it's over, right? So why is Jacob wrestling with God? Well, I think Jacob is doing something that most of us do at points in our journey of faith. He's struggling with God in the midst of his own anxiety and fear. He's struggling with God because it was God who told him to go back to where Esau is. And now that he knows Esau is on his way with 400 men, he's having a very hard time trusting that God was telling him the right thing to do. He's also struggling to believe that what God promised him 20 years ago is actually going to happen because he thinks he might be about to die, right? He's struggling. But even though he's struggling, even though he's filled with fear and anxiety, he won't let go of God's promise. He won't go back to his uncle's house. He's trusting that if he holds on to God, God will bless him. And so he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then God declares that Jacob is going to have a new name. His name will be Israel, which means he who struggles with God. Isn't that interesting? Okay, this is the name that the entire nation of Jacob's descendants will come to be known as. People who struggle with God. Israel is a people who struggles with God. There are people who struggle to trust God, who struggle to obey God, and yet they won't let go of God. So after this night of anxious struggling, let's finally see how things turn out, okay? Chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Basically, he's arranging people from least favorite to favorite, right? Which is kind of, ugh, it's gross. But he really thinks that everyone might die, right? That's where his head's at. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So here it is. This was the moment that kept Jacob up anxiously all night, wrestling with God. But when Esau sees him, he doesn't greet him with weapons or punches or even harsh words, but an embrace, a kiss, and tears. He's just happy to have his brother back. So, here's something that I want to encourage all of us to think about this morning. Is there an Esau in your life? Meaning, is there somebody who you have become estranged from? Maybe because of something that you did some deceitfulness on your part, some wrong that you committed? Is there an Esau in your life? If so, have you sensed God trying to lead you back to that person? Now, Jacob waited 20 years, 
So I'm not going to stand up here and say, if you've got a problem with anybody, then you just have to go. I, I don't. You have to listen to the Spirit of God. Each situation is different, right? But God may be leading you back to make yourself vulnerable before that person, to apologize, to confess, and to try to make peace, right? Has God been reminding you of this person? That might be a sign. If that's happening to you, don't assume that reconciliation isn't possible. Right? Don't assume the worst. Hope for the best. And know this. God puts an extremely high value on reconciliation. It is one of his favorite things. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is trying to get us to realize here that God values people healing their relationships more than any thing you're going to put on an altar, any kind of religious ritual that you could do. This, you know, it's just like Jesus says multiple times, which we've been emphasizing here. Jesus says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Right? He really wants his people to be people of mercy, reconciliation, rather than people who are just able to perform certain religious rituals. Right? God loves reconciliation. Now, we may not always be able to be reconciled, but it's worth trying. We may be surprised at how willing the Esau's in our lives are willing to let go of the past if we just take that step to move towards them again. So do you have an Esau? And is God leading you to end that estrangement? The thought of that right now might provoke a little inner wrestling match with God, right? But don't just immediately tap out of that wrestling match. Wrestle a bit. Seek God. Pray about it. We should seek reconciliation with others because God has sought reconciliation with us. My favorite detail in this story is that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He ran to meet him. Does that remind you of anything? Say, yeah. Parable of the prodigal son. My favorite parable in the Gospels. Jesus told a parable about a wayward son. And when the son came home, the son didn't expect to be reconciled to his father. He had blown the family inheritance, wasted it on wild living, and he thought, well, maybe if I go back to my father's house, at least I'll be able to be a slave working for him. But Jesus says that when the son was still a long way off, the father ran to him, just like Esau does here. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, Jesus tells us that that parable because he wants us to understand that God is like the father in that parable. God doesn't want to condemn sinners. He wants to embrace them. He wants to welcome them home. He doesn't want us to remain estranged 
from him. He wants us to be reconciled. And this is what Jesus, the stairway to heaven, wants us to realize. While we were still a long way off, God ran out to us. Because while we were still a long way off, Jesus took on flesh and entered into the world. While we were still a long way off, Jesus died for us, for our sins. While we were still a long way off, the stairway to heaven came down to us. So seek reconciliation with others because God has sought reconciliation with you. Lord, I pray that if any of us are wrestling with you this morning, that you would help us to continue wrestling, to keep holding on, trusting that there is a blessing to be had in that struggle. And Lord, if there's anyone that you're putting on our hearts, I pray that you would help us to process that well, to figure out how you're leading, and to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable. Lord, we do pray for healing and reconciliation in relationships. We pray that we, as your church, could be an agent of that kind of reconciliation in the world. We know that you have sent us out to be reconcilers. It's a privilege. It's a high calling, Lord. Help us. Help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.